The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome to the Provoke Media Podcast. I'm Arthi Shaw, Executive Editor for the Provoke Media, and I will be your host for today's episode. So today's episode, we have um, several guests, um, many who have kind of worked together to fuse innovation thinking with diversity, equity, and inclusion. So this is a group on today's episode from Kivit, and basically the agency put their digital and analytics chops into high gear this year and published a Black Lives Matter social media insights report, um, which we'll link to in the show notes. Um, the report explores sort of the engagement behind the summer's Black Lives Matter movement, including sort of the key digital drivers and um, how those sort of emerged and how those will continue to sustain the movement. Um, in the discussion, we're gonna cover a lot of ground. We'll talk about the findings in the report. We'll talk about how this sort of grassroots movement became such a force that we saw change happen within companies, within media organizations, between the, the sports mega industrial complex, including the NFL. Um, we'll also look at some of the key takeaways for brands. Um, and we'll also look around the corner at sort of what consumer expectations will be in 2021 and how racial equity and, and the Black Lives Matter movement will, will look as we kind of move into the new year. So with that introduction, I will let my guests introduce themselves so you can be become familiar with each person's voice. Um, there will also be a video version of this podcast, which I'll also include in the show notes. So if it's easier for you to follow that way, please feel free to, to, to watch it that way. Um, I will start with the, with the box that's to my left. Kira, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. Thanks so much for having us on, Arthi. My name is Hera Sheikh. I am a senior associate here at Kivit. I've been at Kivit for four years, um, and I'm really excited to be part of this panel. I think Kivit's done really amazing work in terms of this report, but also in the work that we do as a firm for the clients that we work for. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Brad? Hey, everyone. My name is Brad Weeks. I'm also a senior associate here at Kivit in our New York office. Um, and I'm very excited once again to echo everything Hera said to chat a little bit about these insights we found and hopefully to share some wisdom and insights moving forward. Thanks. Taylor? Hi, I'm Taylor Cavazos. I am a senior account executive here at Kivit in the Miami office. So thanks again for having us on and looking forward to chatting more. Yeah. And lastly, we have Zach, who I will have to just give a quick shout out, is on our Innovator 25 for 2021 and um, leads the, the innovation practice at Kivit, um, which Kivit was our digital agency of the year this year. So, um, Zach, I will, I will let you introduce yourself. You gave me the best introduction I could ask for. Honored to be here. I'm always a fan of Provoke and especially excited here to take a report that has been uh, a very special part of the experience for many of our team members over the last several months um, and how Kivit is applying our cornerstone expertise of data-driven communications uh, to such an important cause. And uh, of course, Provoke being an excellent platform to be able to uh, get that into the hands of uh, communications leaders uh, across industry. So this is a great format and excited to be here as well. Yeah, so, so this, is, this is a good segue into talking about sort of the backstory of the report. Um, can you all talk us through sort of the methodology and the thinking behind, behind this report? Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that there was not a clear path as far as what we were going to do, what we were going to research. Um, like many others uh, around the world, and particularly in our industry, we were in the you know month of June and July thinking about how can we use 
our resources, our expertise at a firm like Kibitz, which is a public affairs firm, by the way. So we are in the business of creating change and outcomes. And as we were watching the protests in the wake of George Floyd's shooting um, at the end of May, we were thinking of how do we leverage what we have as an agency and bring it to make positive change. Um, and through the brainstorms, what we decided on was we wanted to look at social media trends and understand how different brands and companies and institutions across a variety of sectors were engaging with Black Lives Matter. And we knew that at the time from our own client experiences and from what we were reading and seeing as just people um, experiencing this like everyone else, that there was a lot of questions about what is the best way to engage, to speak out, to create change. And what we did is we used our tools. We used a variety of different uh, functions that one is called Brandwatch, another is called Crowd Tangle, uh, and we brought these together to look at the social media environment around Black Lives Matter uh, over the summer and understood looking at over 1,100 different organizations. And again, they ranged from sports to healthcare to higher education to brands to Fortune 500 companies. And we wanted to understand how did they engage with Black Lives Matter and what can we learn about their experiences in terms of the responses they got, the types of content that they put out that really broke through, and how can we make this a tangible playbook for practitioners in our industry, as well as brands across many different sectors to create meaningful change. Yeah, I think that tangible playbook piece is key because I think that's sort of where everyone is, is, is at at the moment. They were like, all right, we know we put out our messages, we put out our statements, um, we made a donation, um, now what? So, so let's, let's talk then a little bit about, um, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, of course, has been going on since 2014. Um, and what, according to the data and your research, what was the inflection point in 2020 that made this into such a huge movement that brands jumped on and for the first time for many of them actually said the words Black Lives Matter? Yeah. And of course, it was really came to a head on May 25th when George Floyd was murdered in broad daylight on a street in Minneapolis. And that, I think, for many was just this moment that you couldn't look away from and ignore any longer. Uh, what we saw from our data, what immediately resulted was not a, a campaign or initiative led by any one particular influencer. It was overwhelmingly grassroots in nature. These were people across every corner of the United States um, speaking out on social media, using the hashtag, referencing Black Lives Matter, George, George Floyd by name, Breonna Taylor by name. And what we saw flow from that was the reaction of brands and corporations, um, which then uh, sustained that momentum. But this was overwhelmingly a grassroots initiated movement. So, you know, and, and, and again, just kind of maybe to do a quick pulse check, you know, I, I know that when that initial sort of surge happened, you know, the data showed this overwhelming support for the movement. Um, but I've also seen some, some data that has shown that that's waned with time, especially amongst, amongst white people. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just curious sort of what your data saw around, around yeah. the sort of ebb and flow of that. This was actually one of the most fascinating trends. And we looked at three things that really validate that this is a expansion and an unprecedented expansion of the movement that previously existed and that was really reaching new types of audiences. On one hand, geographically, we saw the surge in engagement with Black Lives Matter come from places you would not really expect it. Non-diverse states, whether it's Kansas or Utah or Idaho or Alaska, they saw the biggest increase in social media engagement with Black Lives Matter. Second, you might hear places like that suddenly engaging with this movement and think, well, was it all positive or was this type of misinformation, which we know was part of the information environment around Black Lives Matter? You can't deny that. 
But when we looked specifically at how people were talking about Black Lives Matter, what links they were sharing, and also how people were using emoji reactions on a, a social platform like Facebook, we found it was overwhelmingly positive. And that is a validation not only for uh, you know, the, the, the movement being on the right side of history, which we know it is, but also for brands and corporations debating, do I engage here? Am I gonna face some sort of backlash? And what our data showed us was that as these audiences grew and, and really engaged, that it was actually with a very positive sentiment, overwhelmingly is what we found. Uh, and then the last thing, just as a, as a note, uh, about the trend in terms of audiences engaging that, that we saw really stand out was that post-George Floyd, the people who were engaging online with Black Lives Matter were much younger. In, in terms of the under 24 demographic, that really drove a lot of the expansion of the engagement online. Whereas prior to George Floyd, it had skewed a bit older than that. So we saw this new demographic shift in terms of uh, the social media conversation. So, so let's let's step back for a minute, and you know, you had mentioned that the, the the this was you know truly a, a grassroots movement. Um, let's let's sort of follow that trajectory a little bit. Let's it would be great if 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 um, someone could kind of explain you know the the inception you know all the way into this sort of real life you know protests that were happening that resulted in you know real tangible change that we saw. Can you want to kind of take us through that journey? Sure, yeah, I could talk through that. So something really interesting that we found our, in our report was that the most shared link um, that had anything to do with Black Lives Matter or use the hashtag was actually something called a card link. And this was created by a 17 year old activist named Nico. Card is basically a very simplistic landing page. It has a bunch of links where you can, uh, you know, have calls to action. So that includes signing a petition, learning how to vote, making a donation. So uh, what we found was that you really saw the narrative of quote unquote slacktivism, which has been prevalent pretty much for the past several years where people question the, the importance or the effectiveness of like changing your profile picture or something like that. We saw that turn on its head with this movement. And I think the Black Lives Matter activists, the young grassroots activists were so um, masterful in making sure that the anger and the visceral reaction to what we saw happening on the streets actually translated to online action. Um, and the reason they were able to do that was really by tapping into very simplistic landing pages um, and making sure that when people saw something very upsetting online, they immediately also saw, okay, what can I do about it? How do I donate? Where do I find more information? How do I vote, et cetera? So I think that's a very important takeaway for brands and digital strategists like ourselves as well, um, because a call to action is always the key success of metric for campaigns that we run or that other brands run. Um, and you see that immediately being mimicked across different sectors, you know, taking that strategy and applying it to things like the election. So we saw, for instance, anecdotal evidence, but um, I mean, I personally received a lot of advertising leading up to the election from progressive Democrats who had very similar simplistic landing pages, issue-based, saying this is a uh, injustice occurring right now, take action right now. Um, and so it taps into the fact that there's so much content on the internet right now and people do have a very short attention span and therefore when they see something that is upsetting and want to take action immediately, the action item needs to be right there. Um, so the fact that, you know, this was the most shared link across all of the Black Lives Matter hashtag is evidence that there's a hunger to take action. Um, we also saw that translate from a grassroots level to a more influencer celebrity brand um, driven conversation we found that um, the most retweeted tweet that had anything to do with Black Lives Matter was from a K-pop group called BTS, um, who are you know really big influencers. And 
I want to tie this back to the idea of like there's a hunger for action because we saw the second most shared link was about their $1 million donation to the movement. So again, it's not just about brands putting out a statement or influencers putting out a statement. Uh, audiences and fans were hungry and consumers were hungry to see, okay, you put out a statement. Now have you taken action? So there's a hunger for action um, from the brands that we consume, the people that we follow, but also on a personal level, people were really eager to, see something upsetting and then, and then take action related to it. You know, I, I wonder, um, because to your point, I mean, there was this hunger for action on the back of, um, you know, of the movement this summer. And in fact, even like things like the, the Black Square was, was, you know, got a lot of backlash because it, it was a sense that it wasn't action oriented enough. Um, what, what role can brands and perhaps influencers play around the confusion around what to do? Right. I mean, one moment it was it was do the black square. Then it was like, OK, no, the black square is collectivism. And then and then it was OK, donate here. But um, well, no, that that's actually not an, an official uh, affiliated organization. Donate here instead. And I and I also wonder if if and again, just tying this to the election, if there will be more scrutiny around where the, where money goes, because as we saw, there were there were hundreds of millions of dollars donated to, to many Senate candidates who didn't even come within, you know, striking distance of, of their opponents. And again, I don't want to confuse two things, but I just wonder if, if there's a general sense of, okay, I need to be more, um, I need to be more discerning in terms of where I put my dollars and I need some guidance around where would be the best places. And I wonder if there's a role that brands perhaps could play or other influencers could play in sort of helping folks navigate that. Yeah, I think off the bat, like, Certainly there's a role that brands and influencers can play because as the people who are putting out the information and the links, they have to do their due diligence, making sure they're researching the, the places that they're donating. And I'm, a very recent example of that I think is Melissa McCarthy, you know, was doing a uh, charity and, and they unfortunately donated to a charity that wasn't in align with them. So that's definitely something brands need to keep in mind moving forward. Um, but when there is backlash like that, I found that making sure that your external statement and your internal actions and making sure you like actually take care of your employees, things like that are aligned. Um, so if a misstep does happen, at least it doesn't seem like you're kind of just performatively being an activist. When I think what you're question addressed to was both on a personal level or even as a large corporation when you mention about the brand. So in our report, a brand who we kind of identified as doing it right and had an ongoing campaign was Ben and Jerry's. Um, they were one of the first companies to have a really strong statement. Uh, we must dismantle white supremacy and they created graphics associated with this tagline. They created a text and email campaign for specific um, cases such as the hashtag justice for Jake um, campaign that they launched and they even took that towards their consumers by making a new flavor. I think it was called a uh, justice remixed. Mm -hmm. And so this kind of shows how they created a, a hashtag and a trend and really almost bought into this movement, but also it was on an ongoing campaign. So you mentioned, you know, what do we do? Do we post a black square? And I think a lot of it comes out of the authenticity of it. Ben and Jerry's campaign, we saw their growth over a month, you know, over 30%. And because they were so active on Twitter, our report also shows that they were able to tap into a younger demographic. We saw 
um, you know, the age of Twitter users posting about hashtag Black Lives Matter really grow in the younger 17 and 18 to 24. So I think this shows how they kind of use the momentum on social media to also, you know, get to their consumers and as a business, you know, make make money off of it while reaffirming their company values. And the last thing I'll, I'll say and use an example is you talk about it personally. Um, I'm a local artist here in Miami. Uh, I used to actually get a lot of my profit from in-person art fairs, so kind of had to transition to digital like everyone else. Um, but what I did is I essentially told everyone on my, or my followers on social media, I said, you know, if you donate $50 or $100 to the Black Lives Matter official movement or the AACP, um, you know, I'll send you a piece of free art. And I thought that really put the ownership on them to show me a timestamp receipt of where they wanted to donate. And people love free stuff. So it resulted in uh, a piece in like Time Out Miami. And it was such an organic growth for me. And I'm not, you know, bragging big numbers. I think I went from like 150 to 250. But um, I think that really shows that just being authentic, uh, you can really get organic growth that way. Yeah, thanks for that, those examples, because I think that's sort of what, what I was wondering is, you know, there, there seems to be an opportunity for brands to take a leadership position and say, you know, here's where we're donating, here's why, here's where we're saying, here's graphics that we're using, you can share these as well, because um, there does seem to be a void, or at least in the early days, there was definitely a void, and it seems like now that, you know, we, we have some space between us, you know, in the initial movement, again, there's probably confusion around like, wait, where, where should I be sending money to now? Um, what should I be doing now? Um, so let's, let's look at um, sectors. So we've talked a little bit about a few brands, and I'm just curious because I know your report looked at um, specific sectors and how they embraced the movement and what were some of the, the tangible actions um, that they took, not only acknowledging um, Black Lives Matter, but also sort of, you know, taking some initial steps to address racial inequality. Um, were there any sectors um, that you all saw that really stepped up? Yeah, I can give an overview of the different sectors we looked at. And then I think just to give a little bit of a punchline away, uh, there was really a very meaningful uh, change and engagement from sports. And I'll ask my colleague Brad to talk about that in a moment. Uh, but just to give you the broad overview of what we looked at, we looked at over 1,100 organizations, and these included um, YouGov's top 150 brands for the Fortune 500 companies. We looked at uh, Nonprofit Times, top 100 nonprofit organizations. We looked at the US News, top 250 universities in the country. Uh, we looked at the, all the sports teams of the major four uh, leagues. And we also looked at the top healthcare and hospital systems based on Becker's ranking. So we're really looking at a swath of American society and the organizations that are most prominent in it. And what we found was overwhelmingly that there was, as I said earlier, positive reaction to the posts and the statements that, and the content and the commitments that were being made on social media by these organizations. Um, but in addition to seeing just increased engagement and increased um, um, outspokenness, uh, we actually saw that compared to the regular programming, of these organizations. What, for example, a nonprofit would normally put on its social media feed, what a hospital would normally be putting out mid-pandemic, we found in every instance of the sectors I listed, there was higher engagement across the board. So these types of posts about Black Lives Matter, about racial uh, injustice, about equality, this was receiving outsized attention compared to the normal uh, programming that you would come to expect from these organizations. Um, as, as we kind of go into that uh, funnel of which organization, I'm sorry, which sectors really stood out, um, prior to George Floyd, universities were really the sector that had had the most engagement on Black Lives Matter issues. 
uh, in terms of using the hashtag or referencing Black Lives Matter explicitly. The Fortune 500 had the least amount of engagement. In fact, there was only a small handful of companies that had had any type of mention of Black Lives Matter prior to June of this year. When we look at sports, this is the most interesting story, and I'll turn it over to Brad in a moment to elaborate a bit. But just to give you perspective of um, all the teams we looked at prior to George Floyd, uh, there was only 1.6% of the teams we looked at, just under 2%, had actually said Black Lives Matter. That went up to two-thirds of teams in the, in the months following George Floyd. And I think it was not only just the volume and the sort of the scale of engagement, but it's how that engagement took place, which I think was is super meaningful and also sets, I believe, a standard for what brands and organizations can look to as they think about what their playbook is going forward. Yeah, and I, I mean, what, what staggering numbers there. I mean, less than 2% um, to two-thirds of the, of the teams. Um, Brad, I will let you elaborate on sort, of, on sort of that movement in the sports sector. Sure, and I want to begin by first going back to something that Hira talked about, about how grassroots was so important to this movement. We saw that same thing really happening in sports, especially with the NBA, where NBA players were being their own grassroots activists, right? It was really the players that bound together and decided that they're not going to play during playoffs, which is a huge deal, right? So we saw NBA players using their own autonomy to put pressure on, you know, institutions like the NBA and the NFL and MLB and, and even hockey to say that this is an issue that is bigger than sports. Um, NBA was one of the, you know, institutions to really take a lead on this from having Black Lives Matter on their courts to players having, you know, Black Lives Matters on their uniform, right? But also I want to bring it back to the grassroots movement really put pressure on a lot of these institutions and the stakeholders to engage with this issue. And I think something that sectors are going to have to think about is how can they be um, proactive to these moments, right? So much of this is a reactionary thing, right? Grassroots activists, social media is really going up. How do we respond to the moment? When can sectors start to really lean in and lead these conversations? And, and one of the points I really want to highlight just to show how Black Lives Matter really exploded, everyone from Korean pop groups to ice cream companies to sports teams felt as though they had to lead into this conversation, right? I think this was a huge moment where we saw Black Lives Matter transcend whatever quote unquote niche political view that some people may have lumped it into and really saw that this was an issue where racial quality was going to be discussed across every sector. So I think it's important for folks listening to this to think about no matter who you are, what institution you work in, what sector you work in, you know, racial equality is going to be a part of the dialogue and it would behoove you to start to reflect on that and see how you can start to lead that conversation instead of lagging behind and responding to it. So Brad, I, I want to I touch on, on what you said about this being sort of proactive versus reactive, right? I mean, a lot of the responses we saw in, you know, over the summer were really reactive, right? We saw these media companies do mea culpas around, you know, discriminatory policies they've had within their own editorial teams and their own editorial judgment. Um, we saw, you know, companies raise their hands and say, we need to do better. Um, what would be an example of companies, and it, it, perhaps, you know, you, you, you came across one in your research, um, you know, and, and maybe in addition to Ben and Jerry's, because obviously they, you know, they're really well established um, as being proactive here. Um, you know, in, in, you know, what's a model around what that would look like to be proactive instead of waiting for the next crisis to hit, and then kind of backpedaling as quickly as you can? Well, one thing I would say is actually a lot of these, you know, major corporations and institutions actually have 
an opportunity to shift the narrative, right? Because so many of them were silent beforehand. It's not like you have to flip and convince someone, right? So you still have an area of opportunity in the public where they're undecided on where you stand, right? So I think the moment is really ripe for these institutions to be bold. You know, one thing I want to emphasize is Ben and Jerry's has always been this way. Um, they were founded by two leftist folks in Vermont. Uh, they've always preached about social justice and equality, and they've always been bold about that, right? And now they're still one of the most successful companies across the world, right? So I would just encourage companies who are still, you know, who have been silent beforehand, that this is actually a moment where you can take a stand and should take a stand because the issue of Black Lives Matter is not going to change because there's a new president, right? It was founded underneath Barack Obama, our first black president in 2014, went through Trump, we'll probably go through Biden, right? So this issue isn't going away. Um, luckily enough for folks who were silent, you have, our, you have an opportunity to shift the narrative instead of actually try and challenge it, right? So, so lean into it because these conversations that used to be um, sort of taboo uh, no longer have that stigma to it. It's out there in the open. Right. And I think, you know, to, to kind of give a plug to, to Ben and Jerry's, you know, they have been talking about this for a long time. In fact, Sean Greenwood, who's their head of, of public relations, who was, was also on the innovator list this year, um, he spoke at one of our events and in, in, I think it was our New York event in, in 2018. And he was there on stage talking about Black Lives Matter, racial injustice, you know, you know, at, at a time when, Zach, to your point, just, I mean, how, were there any other, were there any Fortune 500 companies that had uttered those words before? Um, so I think that's, I think that's an excellent example. And, and you also touched on, on, on the, 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 the new administration that's coming in in January. And I wanted to explore that a little bit and talk about how that might change the conversation. I mean, you know, we saw purpose ramp up so much, you know, in particular in 2017. And part of that was, you know, this, this sense that there was a void in the federal government around some of these big social issues and that we need the private sector to sort of step in um, and, and sort of, you know, help fill that void. With a Biden administration, do you think that that pressure will look different? Um, or do you think, you know, the, the toothpaste is out of the tube, it's, it's, it's too late. Um, we are now amid a movement that um, there's not, we're not turning back on. I'll say that overall, I think that, especially working from both experience and what we know to be true, that the Trump environment has created a lot of tension around how companies act in the external domain. You're worried about the president, the current president, Trump, reacting and engaging with a brand negatively <clears throat> because of something you said. I don't think we're going to have that issue under the Biden administration. And in fact, I think as it pertains specifically to Black Lives Matter, we're talking about a president-elect who has made racial equality one of the four key agenda items as part of his transition and who is currently um, walking the walk in terms of uh, staffing his administration with a very diverse um, array of people that, that look like America. So I think you're going to see that entree for organizations, corporations to really heed the types of best practices that we identified in this report as in that we've talked about so far in this podcast, being authentic, going beyond words and committing to action, um, being bold, speaking out quickly, not waiting, being proactive even. And I would also say another trend we saw constantly among the content that was really performing the, the highest was when it wasn't just an anonymous organization putting out a statement or, or, or a quote. It was when a CEO was either putting their face or their name to what that statement was and really humanizing it because it's a, it's a human issue that we're talking about at the end of the day. And I feel like under this new administration, um, you know, one that was coming and being elected 
elected based on this ideal of decency and empathy, I, I have to think that we're going to be an environment that's going to be much more welcoming and encouraging to corporations to speak out and to be engaged. So that's, that's another question I have is, is you know, if, if, you're, if, if I'm a brand and I'm coming to you and I'm saying, all right, so I want to do all of these things, but how do I measure success? Um, what does that look like? What would be your counsel to brands? Um, and I'm sure there's no one size fits all because everyone's sort of, you know, not everyone has been in Jerry's. Um, some folks are, are kind of later, later to the game. But, but are there any general rules that, that people should take into account when sort of evaluating their, their initiatives around, around Black Lives Matter? go first. Um, and then I'd love to hear from others. But I, I would say that, uh, and Hira actually brought this point up to me uh, the other day, but that in this COVID environment, um, one of the big behavior changes we saw was the turn towards online. People are online more than they've ever been before. You know, we get it every week when we wake up on a Sunday and we get the time spent on screen time from Apple and we want to shut the phone and, and not look at it again. But the reality is this is a behavior shift that is likely going to stay. And the infrastructure that's been created around Black Lives Matter and other uh, social justice movements is going to be very digitally driven from here on out. That's not going to change. So I think the metrics that we looked at in this report are going to continue to be important because it's going to because digital is going to be continue to be the venue where organizations and entities are going to have uh, a lot of a lot to say and a lot of their time and resources in terms of advancing their external communications on these issues is going to be in that online domain. So to the point that we look at how people are reacting in terms of sentiment, in terms of how people are engaging, in terms of clicking and, and, and looking at your content, I think the signs that we've seen and that we've discussed so far in this discussion are showing that organizations have a, an active engaged audience that are willing to respond very positively when you speak out. We've talked about sports. The sports team with the highest level of engagement relative to their normal programming in terms of their Black Lives Matter content was the Utah Jazz. We're talking about the least diverse fan base in the NBA having the most outsized engagement, positive engagement, as it relates to their Black Lives Matter messaging. If that's not a signal in terms of both the metrics, in terms of the opportunity for brands, I don't know what would be, but that is something that I think is sets a template as far as what we can continue to monitor. And as Taylor said earlier, Ben and Jerry's expanding their audience, that same ideal. Are we reaching people more effectively through engagement? Are we reaching new people in terms of audience growth? These are the types of things I think because of our digital first world will be increasingly and continually important as the movement continues. I think also in addition to using the metrics of success that Zach defined, before that even, I think there needs to be an internal reconciliation at a lot of these companies. Um, and the, the effect of not doing that was seen this summer um, in a lot of companies who kind of made broad statements and then immediately a few weeks later you saw news stories from employees saying, well, that's not what the internal company culture is like. So even before a company thinks about making a bold statement, whether it's about Black Lives Matter or other issues that are incredibly relevant right now, climate change are going to continue to be relevant. You know, companies continue to make very public claims about here's what we're doing to go greener, et cetera. There needs to be an internal reconciliation always as a first step to make sure that the company's culture matches the external statement that they're putting out and to make sure they don't get backlash in that way. I just want to completely echo everything Kira said, because whatever you preach externally, you have to do internally. And, and that's where we're seeing it. You know, you can't say you support Black Lives Matter when your Black employees aren't feeling that same way, right? So before you do anything externally, it is time to sort of do that autopsy internally. Right. And I think the companies that embrace that first and foremost, and sometimes that's actually the most difficult work to do, right, is to sort of have those, you know, in-depth emotional conversations and really do that reflection. 
but if you can't do it, you know, internally, then you can't do it externally. So I'm going to ask, um, you know, about do we need to be on the lookout for a counter movement? And this is, I'm coming at this from a very Silicon Valley perspective, and I don't know if you all followed Coinbase. Um, and the, the statement that they made, I think it was probably in September at this point, where they basically said that they are not going to get involved in any social issues that are not directly related to their business. And I think their exact words were, in, we're not going to be um, in, in, an activist culture, we're going to be a um, mission-driven culture. And, you know, and, and that was, it, it, of course, was met with a lot of backlash, in, including, you know, Aaron Levy, um, the founder and CEO of Box came out and said, you know, this is not the right tack to take. But I was, but there was, a, there was enough momentum that, that, that Coinbase got um, from, you know, the VC community, um, you know, from, from other, other companies as well that basically said, yeah, I mean, the summer was really a distraction and, you know, you know, we need to just kind of be a little bit more heads down and focused on, on what our business objective is. And so are you all anticipating that to gain traction? Um, what, what, what were your thoughts on, on, on that sort of the coin gate? I have some thoughts. Uh, <laughs> what I think is, was important about this summer is conversations that used to be taboo became normalized. I think COVID-19 forced, forced us all to talk about mental health and, you know, how do we take care of our employees who are either a sick or have lost loved ones or are dealing with isolation, loneliness. The Me Too movement forced us to talk about gender inequality in a way that we've never done before. And I think to, to label those issues as just activist movements instead of seeing the humanity behind it, I, I just think you will end up deterring that talent. I, you know, you will deter the black talent. You will, you will deter women from that as well. Like, I, I just think if you shy away of just like, well, we're going to, you know, totally remove politics is impossible, right? So, you know, a question I think, you know, companies and organizations are going to have to deal with is, can I be apolitical? Is, is that even a, a, a pathway to take in this day and age that is so politically charged? Um, but I do know, like, you hear stuff like that and you end up deterring that kind of talent. Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think that there was, there was a lot of privilege kind of um, baked into that perspective. And I think they did get called, called out to, for that. Um, Zach, did you want to add to that as well? I, I'm sitting here just looking at a report and seeing, uh, again, among nonprofits, which might have more implicit activism um, to them than a corporation. But... The, the top most uh, overperforming post from a nonprofit of, that we looked at came from the Nature Conservancy. And they actually posed this question of, does Black Lives Matter really impact our mission in the post? And they said that environmentalists cannot remain silent. They said, it, yes, it does, it is relevant to our mission, and that we must speak out because we're in justice reigns, whether it is unequal access to nature, unfair and inequitable laws or police brutality, we must all do our part to push for change. And that's how they addressed it. And that was the most overperforming post of any nonprofit speaking out of Black, Black, Black Lives Matter. And I, I, I take what Brad said and I take everything we've said on this discussion. And I feel like that crystallizes a lot about wherever you are, whatever it might be that you think your mission is and focused on, that there's a moral imperative to look out for people in our society. And I think we've shown the growth of a movement based on that principle. And we've shown how brands and organizations have reacted to it. And that has stretched, as Brad said at the very beginning, across sectors and all organization types. So I know, um, I know we have to we have to wrap up soon, but I, I have two quick closing questions. And and one was, you know, one thing that really stood out to me in um, the report was that 
that Nordstrom's was the first Fortune 500 company to post about Black Lives Matter post um, George Floyd's murder. And I'm just curious if your data indicated at all, you know, what drove them to, to be first? Um, yeah, it's a great question. And from the outside, I don't know what the internal discussions were like, but I'll tell you that when we looked at the post, it was not only it was it was a statement from Pete and Eric Nordstrom. So when we said earlier that this was a message from the very top, clearly for a company to move that quickly and to attribute the the, the family name of, of the company to that statement, it clearly was a directive that showed, if I would suspect behind the scenes, that this family was very much aligned with what this statement was and made it happen very quickly. And I'll also say that as we talk today about the importance of being proactive and being early, um, this was the first post, as, we, as you said, Arthi, from a Fortune 500 company or any of the consumer brands we looked at, and it received 90 times more engagement than any other post that Nordstrom would typically put on its Facebook page. So it, again, they saw this opportunity, this imperative, and in fact, they were rewarded in a sense because their audience clearly responded to it yeah. positively. So, so I think what we can close on um, the open-ended, and I think you know we touched on this throughout the the the, the discussion, but I, let's have it be sort of a pointed question: um, What's next, and what would be the the key takeaway for brands going into 2021? 2021. <laughs> uh, well, this is Taylor again. Just looking at some of our conclusions or what we found in our report was you know going beyond words and committing to action. So right now we've talked about digital campaigns and what companies can do in um, you know, responding to the Black Lives Movement through their CEOs and successfully doing so like Nordstrom. I think it'll be interesting to see what companies do to continue this course of action in 2021. You know, this the atmosphere of the onset of the reemergence of this movement tied right into you know, the onset of COVID, and then it was also a census year and an election year. So there was a really big push for individual action. And, and uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how that translates next year. And again, I think the authenticity of it is so important. Uh, Hera, you mentioned uh, climate change, maybe being on people, on companies' radars or individuals' radars. And, you know, right now there's even a big trend towards companies getting called out for greenwashing, which is essentially just trying to check a box and say, no, no, we recycle, we're fine. And they're getting looked into and it's, you know, not as authentic of a program as maybe they push. So I, I really think that the authenticity of it is so important um, throughout the company or both on a micro and macro level. Mm -hmm. Taylor, I wanted to, one, one thing I, I, I've been thinking about, and it's, it's come up a couple of times in conversations, is, and, and I don't know if brands are, I'm sure they have this on their radar, but as we go into 2021 and, and, and further, um, there's going to be Supreme Court decisions that are made around voting rights, that are made around LGBTQ rights, around dealing with systemic racism, um, around the environment. And, and I do think there's going to be an expectation for brands to to, to to have a response when a pivotal decision is made. Um, and so I, it's just something that, again, like to your, to your point about the environment and greenwashing and some of these things, like I, I do think it, it, there's gonna be some challenging terrain for, for companies, um, you know, depending on, on how the Supreme Court decisions come down. Also, I think moving forward, the, the context of this report was looking at um, the surge of the Black Lives Matter movement over the summer. But I think another key takeaway for brands and companies is that this isn't a one-off thing um, because a lot of the issues that this movement brought to light was that 
race and Brad mentioned the Me Too movement did a similar thing with gender issues. These things are systemic, right? So um, when you're dealing with something like the COVID pandemic, it also brought to light the disproportionate impact of the lack of healthcare or the impact of the pandemic on Black, Indigenous, people of color communities. So that conversation came up in healthcare, um, similar to uh, Earth Justice, bringing it up in the context of climate change and energy justice. Um, Again, these things are not one-off. Yes, police brutality was at the forefront of this, but uh, companies and brands need to keep in mind that systemic race and gender issues are endemic to all of the infrastructures that we that we live in, and they need to take that into account. Uh, just as like uh, being a better corporate citizen, making sure that all their business practices try to address those issues across the board. And I would just quickly add, once again, you can't say Black Lives Matter if you don't take care of your Black employees. So whatever you want to preach externally, you have to first be able to validate that internally. And, and to the point of 21 being a year of even more social issues and whatnot, what we've seen happen this summer is that the old taboos and myths around workplace conversations and what's inappropriate, whether it's talking about race or gender or class, are eroding. We are now entering a workplace where folks our age want to the question I hear a lot is, can I bring my full self into the workspace, which means my full identity, right? So that's your sexuality, that's your religion, that's your race, that's your gender, that's your class. What we're hopefully will be trending towards is um, a normalization of these conversations, which I think will actually make a healthier and more effective workplace. Um, and I hope, you know, companies begin to embrace that and not shy away from it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, that came up in a conversation I had over the summer was um, there was a, a black psychologist who I interviewed and she said she's tired of these of these conversations being called hard. She said, you know, hard is solving COVID-19. It's solving the pandemic. Validating somebody's humanity shouldn't be a hard conversation. Um, we, we also had the CCO from the, from the ACLU um, on our podcast this summer. And she it said that, you know, the, the words white supremacy just weren't uttered in organizations until this year. I mean, it was, to your point, Brad, it was a really taboo thing to say. And now, I mean, it's, it's said it, we've normalized that. Um, and saying, talking about white supremacy, talking about white privilege is key to addressing the issue. It can't just be, you know, an onus on people of color and, you know, let's make a few hires. Um, well, you know, this was such a great, great conversation, and we, I feel like there's so much more we could say, and luckily that we have an opportunity to do that, because we're going to follow this, this, this podcast up with a feature story in which we'll dig deeper into um, a lot of these key issues, so please take a look out for that. Um, in the meantime, we will have the, the link to the report here in the show notes, um, as well as a video so that, you know, for anyone who wants to follow along with, with, uh, with everyone. Um, so again, thank you to, the, to my guests. You all were fantastic. Um, such a great topic that um, needs to stay on the forefront. So um, I hope that we have you all back again one day. Thank you. This thank is great. you. Thanks, You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.